to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And every year, right around this time, we set aside a week to bring you a show we call Out in the Cold. It's inspired, of course, by winter. Because after all, it's mid-January, right? And once upon a time, mid-January meant we were bundling up in our down coats and shivering in our boots. But these past few winters, that hasn't quite been the case. It's been chilly on occasion, sure, but it's also been pretty balmy, downright spring-like on certain days. Nevertheless, this show has a soft spot in our hearts, so erratic weather be damned, we are going ahead with an hour of cold, 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 both literal and metaphorical. We'll face the frigid waters of the mid-Atlantic with a Maryland family sailing across the world. We'll go skiing on a hill in Virginia, where snow is no longer required for a fun day on the slopes. And we'll sample the cuisine of Iceland as we continue our Eating in the Embassy series. But first, a follow-up to a story we featured exactly one year ago this week. The story took place in southeast Washington in the historic neighborhood of Anacostia. And it was about a place designed to bring Washingtonians, women specifically, out of the cold. It's known as Calvary Women's Shelter. And when the organization announced its plans to build transitional housing at the center of Anacostia's up-and-coming commercial district... The leaders of this community say they have been left out of the loop. Not just left out of the loop, but disrespected by Calvary. Not even responding People weren't to too happy, like Greta Fuller. She was leading one of the protests at the time. $300 million was spent on the 11th Street Bridge, was supposed to revitalize and bring our community into the rest of the District of Columbia. And what we have at the foot of that bridge is a transitional housing. Emily Berman brought us the original story last year, and she joins me in the studio right now. Hi, Emily. Hi. All right, so tell us, has the shelter had a, a chilling effect, so to speak, on businesses that are looking to set up in Anacostia? So the answer is no. It really hasn't been as bad as people thought it would be. In fact, I asked Chris Thompson, who's the executive director of Calvary Women's Services, to show me around their new building. And right outside their window, there's a business that wasn't there a year ago. Is that a new pharmacy? Yeah, they opened before we did and are great. It's called Grubbs Pharmacy, and there are also two new Capital Bike Share racks. And this is just literally right across the street. Okay, but how is the community responding to Calvary? Did you ask Thompson about that? I did, and she pointed out they've only been in the space a couple weeks, but it's going really well. We have only had positive reception from folks in this neighborhood. Okay, I don't don't mean to be a, a total downer here, but surely not everyone who lives and works in Anacostia can be all that gung ho, right? No, not everyone. Dwayne Gaudier is the CEO of Arch Development Corporation. He's been working in the neighborhood for more than 30 years and is sort of one of the central figures in Anacostia's redevelopment. Obviously, the Calvary Women's Shelter was not what the community wanted. It, to a large extent, put a stop on one of the primary properties that could have been a spur to more economic development. So in that way, it's definitely a negative. Obviously, it is here now. Arch owns a bunch of buildings in Anacostia and is focused on bringing the arts and small businesses to the neighborhood. And if you've been to or heard about an art opening or networking event in Anacostia, chances are this group is behind it. I met up with Gaudier at the Hive 2.0, which is the second co-working space Arch has launched in the past two years. This one opened just a few weeks ago. Wow, so now they have two spaces. It sounds like they're doing pretty well. 
Totally. And this is also the group behind Luminate Anacostia, which is an arts and performance festival. Last year, the festival took place over three months in vacant buildings around Anacostia, and they're gearing up to do the same thing this year. But more than half the buildings they used last year are now rented with long-term leases. So it sounds like it's good for the neighborhood, but harder for, like, the event organizers. Yeah, exactly. Are there any other new businesses coming to the neighborhood? There are. There's actually a lot going on. So I'll give you a little more of a rundown. There's a big warehouse the D.C. police used to store evidence, and that is being turned into an office building. It's 75 percent leased. There's a theater opening, the Anacostia Playhouse, and I poked around the construction site, and it's it's really coming along. That should be opening in April. Dwayne Gaudier has been staring at all these vacant buildings for years and says 2012 was a huge year for the neighborhood. Almost Every single vacant property that was up for rent has either been rented or there's a letter of interest in renting it. That is unbelievably positive. And I think one of the most interesting ideas is a partnership between ARCH and the D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development, also known as the DHCD. They've designated more than $750,000 to help building owners redo their storefronts in 2013. They're going one building at a time to repaint, put up new signs and molding. And speaking of storefronts, I spoke also with Michael Kelly, the director of the DHCD, and he says they're in negotiations right now to purchase two buildings at the intersection of MLK Avenue and Good Hope Road, which is the heart of Anacostia. And these buildings right now are owned by the IRS. The idea, I think, would be what we're talking about up and down the strip is first floor retail and second floor residential. Kelly works in the neighborhood and is just as excited as anyone about more retail. He says he really wants to be able to get his dry cleaning done while he's at work. That sounds like a sweet deal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) While there is a decent amount of money flowing in, I don't want to give you the impression that there have been no setbacks. There is a huge building right in the commercial district, a former discount furniture store, that was just bought by a social service nonprofit. They're turning it into an office building, but I definitely heard some griping about that. And there's also the issue of Uniontown Bar and Grill. Maybe you remember this story. It was the first upscale restaurant in Anacostia, and the owners pleaded guilty to drug trafficking charges. It was really a shock for the community, but the building owner has released the space and is ready to move on. Well, then it sounds like there's something something positive coming out of all that, that negative news. Well, the restaurant's still boarded up, but it should open later this spring, and hopefully the fries will be as good as they were before. <laughs> so, Emily, in terms of, of the big picture for this part of the city, we also have the construction of the new 11th Street Bridge happening right now. We have the renovation of the St. Elizabeth's campus. Would you say, then, that Anacostia is, is really going to have a new look within just a year or two? That's the plan. Well, thank you, Emily Berman, for this update. You bet. For more on the new development in Anacostia and to see a rendering of the facade of the new Anacostia Playhouse, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So clearly, many transformations are afoot in Anacostia. But the bridge, the retail, the restaurants, they aren't the only things changing the face of the neighborhood. Hi, Ms. Roy. How are you? Hello, I'm glad y'all come in. 
Something else that's bringing new life to Anacostia? Can you show us around the house a little bit? Yeah. Just giving us a little tour? Uh-huh. Are the houses? This is the dining room. This is my kitchen. Big kitchen. Very big. <laughs> Specifically, houses that are being brought in from the cold, so to speak, like this one, owned by 81-year-old Eunice Roy. I love my windows. Those are the windows they put in for me. I love it. What did the windows look like before? Oh, my gracious. <laughs> it was old. Air was just coming in. And, and it was all cold in here, but now it's nice. And I just love it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Roy is a recipient in the Historic Homeowner Grant Program. I visited her home and several others in Anacostia with Brendan Meyer, a historic preservation specialist with the office that gives out the grants, the D.C. Office of Planning. The maximum grant is only $35,000. So you're not turning any house into a palace. We're not doing any work on the interior. It's really the outsides of the house. What makes the house weather tight? Because that's the most public part of the house. The outside of every house, all of those together, make up the character of the historic district. And that's really what my office is charged with doing, protecting the historic character of the neighborhoods. Grants are available to low- and moderate-income households in 12 of these historic neighborhoods. Anacostia, of course, Capitol Hill. Ledroit Park. Shaw. Blagden Alley. Mount Vernon Square. Mount Vernon Triangle. Mount Pleasant. Striver Section. Tacoma. 14th Street and U Street. And since 2008, when Mayor Adrian Fenty launched the program in Anacostia... Because that's where the need was greatest. Nearly 100 households have received grants. We did most of those before 2010, when the city really had some budget difficulties and went through a crunch. So our program was one of the programs that was forced to slow down in terms of our funding. But now the program is back and going strong, especially here in Anacostia, which has been an official historic district since 1978. It has about 300 homes, and if you walk around the district, as Meyer and I did, you'll see the homes are in various conditions. On one block, we saw this dark gray one that was barely standing. Property owner, not around anymore. Didn't have the resources to maintain this. Right now the city is coming and stabilized it. And even our grant program can't help this. But then right next door, there's this bright white house that the program could help, and did. Ahmed Jabali Nash was the restoration's project manager. The house had aluminum siding all over it, and uh, we ripped off all aluminum siding to restore it down to the uh, original wood siding, as you see. We painted it, and we restored the front of it, took up the old floor and put down new tongue-and-groove flooring, and restored the house back to its historical piece. Nash co-owns Housing Evaluations Plus, a contracting company that's worked on several grant recipients' homes in Anacostia. And an interesting thing about contractors like HEP, Brendan Meyer says, is the Office of Planning has nothing to do with finding them. The homeowners apply for the grant, and they state what parts of the houses they want to fix up. And along with that, they include three bids from three different contractors. And part of our review, not only are we looking for what would be the most interesting parts of the house to restore and fix up, the most important parts, but we're also looking to make sure that they're working with legitimate contractors who are licensed, who are giving them a fair price. Now, as Meyer mentioned before, the historic homeowner grant program can't help every house. Some, like that dilapidated gray one, need way more TLC than the program can give. And others, like this purplish one a few blocks away, can only go so far. This house was in the family for three generations, and three generations were still living in the house. It was in the worst shape of any house that we had in the grant program. At some point, someone had slapped on this fake brick siding, and that was falling apart. The porch was crumbling, and the rear wall was caving in. The maximum grant took care of what we could. 
We reconstructed the back of the house. We put up the new front porch. We took off the Inselbrick siding. We restored the original wood siding that was still underneath there. Things were definitely looking up. But this was back in 2008, okay, just after the housing bubble. So this is one of those homeowners that despite our help, despite their best efforts, they eventually got foreclosed on. And in the short time that they've been out of the house, somebody's stolen the gutters. So that lovely purplish paint on the original wood siding is now being washed away. It's heartbreaking, Meyer says, but there is a silver lining to the story. See, the house next to the purplish one had been in a pretty sorry state, too. But a developer bought this house and did the same restoration work that we did on the first house. So once we fixed this up, that house became a lot more attractive as an investment, as a place to live. So, you know, we can't help everybody, but we sure helped the street. So much so, in fact, that the day Meyer and I visited, we saw something pretty exciting at the purplish house. There's actually permits in the window. So I know that although the bank had to foreclose, the bank has now sold it to a developer. And the developer is going to start where we left off and hopefully get another family in here. And in the meantime, the house next door sort of took a cue off of this one. Yep, yep. So almost two for one. Our one grant has fixed both houses, really. Brendan Meyer says the Office of Planning hopes to continue the historic homeowner grant program for as long as funding is available. Because even though, as he mentioned earlier, $35,000 won't turn a house into a palace, it can certainly go a long way toward making a person feel like his or her home is a castle. For more on the Historic Homeowner Grant Program and to see before and after photos of some of those historic houses in Anacostia, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back downhill skiing minus the snow. It shocks a lot of people because their first thought is, I'm not going to ride on that. You know, I'll ride anywhere in the world, but I won't ride on that because I don't want to lose my skin. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Our theme this week is out in the cold. But as you may have noticed, it hasn't really been all that cold around these parts of late, at least not consistently. Last year, 2012, was the warmest year on record in the United States. And in the Mid-Atlantic, we're experiencing our longest stretch without a major snowstorm since the 1800s. Not exactly good news for local ski resorts, many of which have been getting more rain lately than snow. But there's one slope where that doesn't matter, where actually rain makes for better skiing. Jacob Fenston has the story. It sounds like snow. It kind of looks like snow if you squint, and it sort of feels like snow under your skis. Like you're sitting down in a chair, weight back on the back of your like calf and your boot. I'm at the Liberty Mountain Snowflex Center at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. 
My instructor, Brent Washburn, is taking me up to the top of the slope. He warns me it's a little bit different than skiing on snow. It's similar. It takes a little getting used to just because the stopping edge isn't as effective as snow, and it is a little higher in friction than snow. Okay, yeah. So it looks it, it looks, looks more intimidating than than you're gonna be. You're not gonna be going as fast as you would if it was like ice or snow. The snow here is actually plastic. Big sheets of bristles stitched together across the mountainside. Everybody's first reaction is that's going to hurt and it's going to take your skin off. Drew Sherwood is the general manager here. Well, you're not you're not going to lose your skin. I, I can promise you that um, as long as you're covered up. The Snowflex Center opened up in 2009, the first and so far only ski slope in North America using this fake snow. While many ski areas in the Mid-Atlantic were forced to open up late this season because of warm weather, the slope here is open 360 days a year. Mother Nature is almost irrelevant. The weather is just sort of a backdrop. It doesn't affect us. If it snows here, we are we can are open, we can go skiing, we can go snowboarding. If it's icing out, if it's raining out, if it's 100 degrees out, we can still ride here. So is plastic the future of skiing? Matthew Graham has been skiing in the Mid-Atlantic for the past 20 years. He's a local writer and regular columnist for the website DC Ski. Last weekend, he and his wife headed up to Snowshoe Mountain to do some spring skiing in January. You know, 65 degrees and you're skiing and you're just in your loose coat and zippers open and everyone's smiling and it's sunny. Graham says this kind of weather weirdness has gotten much more common over the past few decades. Fifteen years ago, Snowshoe Mountain would be open for um, Thanksgiving. Christmas week was always guaranteed good snow. There's still an occasional cold winter, but the trend has been warming and less snow. So the resorts that have keyed on the fact that they need to make snow whenever there's cold weather are doing well. But sometimes there's just not enough cold weather to make snow. I called up Tim Prather, general manager of Wisp Resort in western Maryland, typically one of the more snow-endowed ski centers in the area. Oh, can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. How's the season going so far? What's the snow out there like right now? (laughs) It's up and down. So far, a lot of rain and a lot of 60-degree days. Whether this is a trend or an anomaly, uh, there's a lot of debate about. But uh, we've always been a business that is kind of at the whims of the weather. I say we're kind of like farmers. We're hoping for rain, uh, and then we're hoping that it doesn't rain. (laughs) hoping for snow, and then hoping we don't get too much snow. Back at the Snowflex Center, Drew Sherwood says businesses from around the country have been calling him up, curious about his all-weather plastic slope. He says some resorts are considering augmenting real snow slopes with plastic so they can extend their season. We've had anybody from California, Texas, Minnesota, uh, up in New York, all the way down to Florida, uh, even in South America. Liberty University spent more than $6 million building the slope in Lynchburg, a price tag that could be unaffordable for commercial resorts. But in Europe, there are already dozens of synthetic ski slopes, and they've been around for years. Sherwood says people are closely watching Liberty to see whether snowless skiing will take off here in the States. So this is the beginner slope? Yeah. In the meantime, down I go. My first run on plastic. I'm Jacob Fenston. Want to see a video of what it's like to ski on plastic snow? You can find one on our website, metroconnection.org.
All right, so if snowless skiing doesn't exactly float your boat, how about a more traditional winter pastime? Like, say, ice skating. The new Canal Park Ice Rink opened at 2nd and M Street Southeast about two months ago. It's part of a much larger effort to redevelop a neighborhood once home to vacant lots and warehouses. In the latest installment of our DC Gigs series, we sent reporter Jocelyn Frank out to meet the woman running the show at the new outdoor rink. I drive a Hyundai in real life, which only cost me a couple of thousand, but for my day job, I get to drive a $140,000 Zamboni. (laughs) Bright red. Bright red. My name is Nancy Butler. I'm general manager here at Canal Park Ice Skating Rink. We opened November the 16th. I started working here early November, getting it started, getting the whole thing started. Felt like a construction worker. And here we are a month and a half later, and I'm general manager. So I'm very proud of myself. Pull the strings, and you make sure the skate is as tight as possible. Crisscross. I'm a Washingtonian, born and raised in Washington, raised on Capitol Hill. And I'm glad we had this ice skating ring. I was raised at the one on Fort DuPont, the indoor one, but it was indoor. It was just kind of dreary. The first time I put on a pair of skates, I remember everybody wanted to be Dorothy Hamilton. So my dad took me to the ice skating ring. He didn't, I, he wouldn't get on the skates, but he would sit there while I would make it around the ring. And, you know, he didn't get the full effect of it. Like out here, we have sun. We're outside. It's something new. This is where we collect our money, and this is where we also pass out the skates over here. We have approximately 40 kids that work here. They're all from D.C. Most of them are from low-income housing. They're very good workers, and we all make this thing work together. I knew Arthur Cap. I knew this neighborhood when it was strictly projects, housing projects. Never thought that this neighborhood would look like this, but some of the old residents were able to come back on some type of voucher program or some type of public assistance, so that worked out pretty well. What used to be the old Star Building is here. We have the Department of Transportation. We're a block over from the waterfront. We've got the Navy Yard two blocks down. Our nation's capital here. This is Washington. It feels like Washington. It's a a new Washington. That was Nancy Butler speaking with reporter Jocelyn Frank. Do you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should know about? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Everybody's working for the weekend. subject of outdoor sports, we're actually going to turn to an outdoor activity that isn't necessarily the first one that comes to mind when you're doing a show called Out in the Cold. It's sailing. And around these parts, sailing isn't really a big winter thing. But if you happen to be like Richard and Jessica Johnson of Oxford, Maryland, 
Sailing is a year-round endeavor. We first met the Johnsons a few months ago when they were getting ready for a round-the-world sailing adventure from the eastern shore to New Zealand. Well, since then, the Johnsons set sail with a recorder and a microphone. They sent us this audio postcard from the chilly, rough waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Hi, this is Jessica Johnson. I'm sitting on Elsie's aft deck, and uh, we just rounded Cape Hatteras. We departed Oxford on Saturday with eight people on board and um, spent a couple days making our way down the Chesapeake. Here is the offshore waters forecast for the following marine location. Baltimore Canyon to Hatteras Canyon. Gale warning. Today, north to northeast winds 15 to 25 knots increasing. It's a, it's a challenging time of year to depart the Chesapeake and waiting for the right weather to go offshore. So that's uh, one reason we're heading now into uh, Beaufort, North Carolina. I'm Emma. We're on Elsie in the Mid-Atlantic, and we're about three days out. And I'm talking to Annie. She's our second mate on board, and she's 22 years old. Annie, how do you like Elsie? Oh, I love it so far. It's really different. I haven't sailed on a catamaran before. but I'm loving the experience so far, and it's a great crew, and it's beautiful out here today, so not much complaints. We just departed uh, Beaufort, North Carolina, and we're on our way to the Caribbean, and the crew seems pretty excited. Uh, It's a beautiful sailing day. We've got about 10 knots of northwesterly breeze, not a cloud in the sky, Uh, Full sail, full main, full mizzen, and our staysail flying. And um, it's a a really nice day to get going offshore. Good morning. This is Richard on Elsie. If uh, flying fish are the um, sign of getting to the tropics, I think you could say we made it this morning. Through the night, the deck has been pelted with flying fish. We have uh, three in the netting right now. It's the first night uh, that we've had them, and a sure sign that we're into the warm and tropic water. It's about 4 a.m., and uh, we're about 12 miles north of the Virgin Islands, and we can see the shadows of the islands and uh, the lights on shore and uh, we've taken down most of our sail. We're trying to slow down so we can arrive in daylight. So far the trip's been rather bumpy from all signs in the weather. Looks like it'll be smooth sailing ahead for at least three or four days. So onward. was Richard Johnson on board his catamaran, Elsie. We also heard from his wife, Jessica, and daughter, Emma, along with crew member, Annie Ray. Their story was produced by Tara Boyle. If you'd like to follow the Johnson's itinerary across the world, head to our website, metroconnection.org.
up next, out in the cold on the president's big day. Inauguration brings a pit into my stomach every four years. It's sort of like going into, you know, going into war uh, on, a, on a ship in a fog. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are going out in the cold. In this part of the show, we're actually going to focus on food, starting with Eating in the Embassy, our ongoing series with the local food blog, Eater DC. This time around, we're heading to northwest Washington, inside the House of Sweden. Great place, by the way. Yeah, quite nice. To the Embassy of Iceland, or one door down, I guess I should say. So the Embassy is literally next door, and the way it works is that we made a lease with the House of Sweden, so we have two units. We're in the unit that's set up as a residence for this guy. My name is Erlinger Erlingsson. I'm a counselor at the Embassy of Iceland in D.C. I've been in D.C. for about nine months. And today, Eater D.C.'s Missy Frederick and I are here to taste some Icelandic cuisine. Though, the way Erlinger explains it... We don't have a strongly developed concept of Icelandic cuisine. See, the Vikings first settled Iceland in the 9th century. And they were migrants from Norway. So that's that's sort of our origin and a lot of our culture is is very Norse. After the Vikings, Iceland was independent for a while. And then there was a civil war in Iceland in the 13th, 14th century. Then Iceland came under the rule of Norway. And then Norway came under the rule of Denmark. And so we became a Danish holding for, for several centuries. So Erlinger says his country's cuisine is kind of a conglomeration of all these Scandinavian cultures. But all the same, the island nation of 320,000 people does serve up plenty of things it can call its own. Like the first item Erlinger serves me and Missy. Harðfiskur, which literally translated as hard fish. And you, you traditionally use uh, haddock that gets hung up and dried outdoors, preferably. So it's, I, I refer to it as similar to jerky or something like that. Now, when you bite into the fish jerky, it's kind of, well, it's kind of hard to chew. And it takes a minute for it to sort of but eventually it softens up and this really potent, salty, fishy flavor kicks in. I like it more than I would have expected hearing the phrase fish jerky. I'll, I'll give it that much for sure. Okay. We <laughs> yeah. think our marketing. Yeah. <laughs> Another Icelandic item Erlinger has us try. That is so tasty. Mm. And the texture, texture right? Yeah. Is on the sweeter side. It's called skier. It's essentially like an Icelandic relative of Greek yogurt. Technically, it's a cheese, sort of a filtered uh, dairy product, and it, it has a sort of a medium-thick texture. Skier's been around since the Vikings and has three times the protein of regular yogurt. And speaking of protein, Icelandic cuisine is loaded with the stuff, mainly because Iceland... It's about the size of Ireland, and I think it's quite close to the size of Virginia. ...doesn't have a lot of great cropland. Mostly the interior of, of the island is volcanic deserts and mountains and glaciers and stuff. So the country produces a lot of dairy, fish, and something Erlinger says he's been missing ever since he came to the States. I do miss the lamb. I think our lamb is quite special. So all our sheep, which were, were originally brought over by the Vikings when they settled Iceland, they're not penned in or not restricted in terms of movement. So they're, they're practically like wild sheep in that sense. And while you can serve Icelandic lamb roasted or grilled or smoked, one of Erlinger's favorite ways to eat it is a little faster. Iceland even has its own fast food. There's a hot dog stand in Reykjavik known as the town's best hot dogs or Bayern's best. And they're lamb hot dogs in a soft white bun, usually with both uh, raw onion and uh, roasted onion, ketchup, mustard, and then uh, mayonnaise relish. Unless, that is, you're the 42nd president of the United States. Bill Clinton, when he was in Iceland in 2004, 
I was working actually for the U.S. Embassy at the time in Reykjavik, and so we were doing a walkabout, and, and my deputy chief of mission then decided, oh, we should stop there and have a hot dog. So, you know, there's a famous order at that hot dog stand. You can have a hot dog only with mustard, which is known as the Clinton. <laughs> okay, so we've covered a few different Icelandic foods. Let's turn now to beverages, specifically boozy beverages. Interesting thing about alcohol in Iceland, prohibition started in 1915 and basically didn't end until 1989. But then since then, we've sort of come a long way. Beer initially was all imported, and now we've got a lot more microbrewery-style things going on. And they've done pretty well in competitions, even internationally. They've gotten some awards. The can Erlinger serves to me and Missy contains one of those award-winning brews. Ales good literally means ales gold, so that's like their premium lager. Great. But there's more. <laughs> he also busts out a bottle of what may be Iceland's most famous drink, Brennevin. It's called the Black Death sometimes. It's another word for it. You make Brennevin from fermented potato mash and caraway seeds. And with an alcohol content of 37.5%, the stuff is strong. That's why legend has it. It was developed to wash down something Icelanders have been eating for centuries. Haukart, which is Icelandic for shark. Iceland used to be extremely poor until the middle of the 20th century. And so we were obliged to eat whatever we could get from the sea and and on the hoof in Iceland. So with plenty of sharks in the sea, Icelanders began using the animals for oil and meat, which they'd cure and then ferment for months and months and months. And, yeah, some people like to say the, the reason for Brandyvin is you, you take tiny bites always of the shark uh, and you need to wash it down and, sort of, and, and to sort of get the flavor quickly out of your mouth after you've, after you've had it. Now, we're not eating any fermented shark here in Erlinger's apartment, but after our little feast of Icelandic goodness, what else to do but finish it off with a shot? Bottoms up. It's like toast to the bottom. <laughs> of Black Death. That'll warm you up. Yeah. We have plenty more about Icelandic cuisine over at metroconnection.org, including a recipe for white chocolate skier pie. Plus, um, I actually paid a visit to Iceland not too long ago, and you can see a few photos from that trip on metroconnection.org, too. We have all kinds of food up there, like those hot dogs Erlinger mentioned, and also um, geyser bread. You actually cook this stuff in the ground. No joke. And trust me, it is delicious. You can find all that on more on metroconnection.org. Well, now that we've feasted on fish jerky and skier, we'll keep dishing on food and turn to catering. Washington's a pretty event-heavy town, right? So caterers in the city are pretty much accustomed to cranking out hundreds or thousands of hors d'oeuvres and such without breaking a sweat. But every four years, one single day puts tons of pressure on the city's caterers. We're talking about Inauguration Day. The first time President Obama was sworn in, extreme crowds, coupled with extremely cold weather, made for some unusual challenges for those in charge of feeding inaugural partygoers. This year, things aren't expected to be quite as off the hook. But as Jonathan Wilson tells us, local caterers will still be in a frenzy. Ridgewell's catering CEO, Susan Laz, is making her way through the maze of kitchens at the company's headquarters in Chevy Chase, D.C. Good morning, Susan. Long time no see you. Happy New Year, everybody. 
Staffers here are ramping things up as inauguration weekend approaches. It's a routine with which the city's largest catering business is a little bit familiar. Well, we've been doing inaugurations since Eisenhower's era, and so every four years, you know, Bridgewell's is there to be found somewhere along the parade route or an inaugural ball. There will be just two official inaugural balls this year, compared with the 10 held in 2009. Even unofficial inaugural parties are expected to be less extravagant in light of the country's current economic struggles. But the amount of food pushed out of Ridgewell's kitchens will still be massive. At least 80 pounds of salmon sides, 125 pounds of mashed potatoes, and 3,000 empanadas. But Laz says the volume of food isn't the real challenge on Inauguration Weekend. We could have just as busy of a day any other day of the year, but you don't have the security and the, the, the parameters of, of getting in and out of event space. Across town, the kitchen at Occasions Catering is humming with the sounds of dicing knives and sizzling oil. The company is coming off one of its best holiday seasons. And the kitchen itself sits in the middle of a brand new building. Occasions moved into the $10 million facility in April. Co-founder Mark Michael has reason to smile from ear to ear. But right now, he's feeling, well, tense. Inauguration brings a pit into my stomach every four years. It's sort of like going into, you know, going into war uh, on, a, on a ship in a fog. Michael says the last time around, the trickiest part was making sure key staffers were inside the security perimeter before the rest of the general public flooded in. Enrique Sanchez, a manager at Occasions, remembers securing lodging, if you can call it that, for 200 employees. We had people sleeping over at the American History, Natural History, any museum. We secured spots for a lot of our staff, waiters and cooks, to spend the night in there so they don't have to go through the security lines. As magnificent as many of our downtown museums may be, few are known for an abundance of cozy places to curl up for a good night's rest. Just ask Occasion's cook, Sam Jones. You're sitting on the floor. <laughs> but they gave you, uh, Occasion gave you like uh, a blanket, you know, so they, so you was pretty much pretty cool after that. I mean, you had to do what you had to do, you know, to get down in, in, that, in those venues early. Mark Michael says after you do a couple of inaugurations, you just accept that security is going to get a little tighter each time, and you deal with it. But the unprecedented crowds that showed up in 2009, coupled with colder-than-average temperatures that week, brought something else. Lots and lots of coats to check. Yep, caterers have to worry about that as well. There weren't enough coat racks in Washington, D.C., so we were finding creative ways to both hang uh, outer garments and secure them during events. And literally, we were bringing in rods and hanging them with, you know, chairs and things like that. With smaller crowds and fewer inaugural balls, some of the bigger challenges D.C.'s top catering outfits faced in 2009 will probably be moot. But undoubtedly, there will be other catering caveats for these folks to tackle. Michael says that's all just part of the busiest time in a D.C. caterer's life. Everybody both loves and hates inauguration. They hate it just because it's a couple of nights of no sleep, but everybody loves it because it's sort of a badge of honor in the catering world to be a part of such a big celebration. But just maybe, if you are headed to a big inaugural ball or party, you could, well, leave your coat in the car? Just a thought. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Are you heading to this year's inauguration? You can be a part of WAMU's coverage by tweeting your photos and tips for getting around. Just use the hashtag 
W-A-M-U in NOG. That's W-A-M-U-I-N-A-U-G. We'll map your photos and tweets on the W-A-M-U website, WAMU.org. For this next story, we're going to get out of the cold, actually, and head to a warm and humid spot in Arlington, Virginia. It's the headquarters of another caterer, a guy by the name of Joel Tavaz. His facility includes a fish farm and a hydroponic or soil-free garden. And the thing about the farm and garden is they're connected to each other in a pretty unusual way. Sabri Benashur has more. Walk into Joel Tavaz's main event catering operation in Arlington and you'll see a sleek test kitchen with brushed steel stoves, a wine tasting area. And then, in the back... It's a garden inside our warehouse. I mean, we're an old industrial section of town and we happen to have a a garden with fish. It's actually much more than a garden. It's a greenhouse-fish-farm combo. It looks like a massive two-story bunk bed with at least four levels. On the upper levels, broadleaf squash vines spill out the side and around the metal posts holding the thing up. On the bottom bunk are chest-high tubs full of auburn-colored water. As you can see here, what we have is a series of fish tanks in which we house tilapia. We have at least 500 full-size fish in the range of two to three pounds. Tavaz throws in a few handfuls of little pellets. The fish gobble them up in seconds. This is Tavaz's attempt at a closed-loop aquaponics system. What that means is the fish waste feeds the plants. The plants help filter the water for the fish. It's almost self-contained, almost like a little ecosystem. What happens is the fish excrete their waste, and it's an ammonia-rich waste. In aquaponics, what we do is that we introduce these naturally occurring bacteria, which are called nitrobacters, to process, to convert the ammonia into a nitrate, and that is the base element of a fertilizer. The plants, absolutely, it's like crack for plants, and they love it, and this is how you're able to get these beautiful greens with absolutely no soil. Tavaz climbs 12 feet up a ladder and points to the second level, where a green carpet of seedlings is lit by LED lights. And here we have arugula, we have chia seeds, we have amaranth, We have lettuces. Uh, We probably have 15 different varieties of plants. One one of the beautiful things about systems like this, in a recirculating system, there's almost no waste. Tavaz's goal is to scale this up and one day have aquaponic greenhouses on the roof. He wants to replace the fish pellets with larvae from his compost bins if he can get approval from the local health department. And he wants this system to provide fish and more vegetables to his catering business. So far, he hasn't harvested any fish yet. i got to tell you that at first, when I was putting this thing together, people thought I was nuts. Uh, my employees, my spouse, uh, my friends thought I was just completely uh, out of my gourd. But... Uh, I've proved them wrong. I mean, the system the system is fully functional. It works. It works, but it isn't economical for Tavaz right now. It'd be cheaper just to buy tilapia, and he's getting mostly microgreens as opposed to vegetables. If you're trying to market to the person that's going to go to the uh, large grocery store, you're, you're not going to meet that market demand. Stephen Newman is a greenhouse crops extension specialist at Colorado State University. You need to focus on 
a higher end market that's looking for that's willing to pay the price for locally produced food and these sorts of things. But there are other ways this could become doable besides simply focusing on shishi niche high-end markets. Don Bailey is a research specialist at the University of the Virgin Islands Agricultural Experiment Station. It can be economical. It is quite doable. One of the big reasons why urban agriculture is a difficult proposition is that land and water in the city are expensive compared to their cost in, say, rural Mississippi, where catfish are farmed by the acre. But that's exactly why Bailey thinks aquaponics is a good idea. The reason we started studying it in the Virgin Islands is because our land is very expensive. So farmers need to be able to intensify their production into small parcels of land. So if you can farm intensively, you can get enough bang for your buck to make this system work. For now, though, Tavaz says he isn't really worried about the money-making angle. It's really more of an experiment. One of our goals is how to have an efficient vertical farm. So right now it's, uh, it's just trying to mitigate our waste. And on that goal, at least, he's succeeding. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Ever wonder what a tilapia microgreens closed-loop system looks like? Well, consider it your lucky day. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Tenley Town and LeDroit Park in Northwest DC. My name is Lauren Case. I'm 45 years old and I live in Tenley Town, Washington, DC. It is uh, between Massachusetts and Wisconsin Avenues. The Tenley Town Metro stop is about three blocks away. Uh, So it's upper Northwest. Do you have people who have lived here for a long, long time, you have uh, a lot of families with, with kids of all ages, ranging from you know, infants to toddlers, elementary school, middle school, high school, and then kids who have uh, gone on to college. Being able to walk around, um, having your kids know how to navigate metro and buses, access to parks, and all that D.C. has to offer is just really great. My favorite part is the maple tree in my neighbor's front yard, particularly in the fall. Um, But I think just the people and the sense of uh, camaraderie that that we have in this neighborhood and and looking out for each other. If you want to live in a neighborhood where you have access to public transportation, access to great schools, and to all the great things that D.C. has to offer, this neighborhood's for you. My name is Eric Fiddler, and I'm 28, and I live in LaDroit Park. LaDroit Park was founded in the 1870s and started as an exclusively white neighborhood. And then a few decades later, around the turn of the century, it became notable as uh, the home of, of Washington's black intelligentsia, and a lot of notable people lived here. Uh, LaDroit Park is really notable for two things, uh, its architecture and its history. And I think uh, the more I research its history, the more I realize that it actually plays a very important role in African-American history in the United States. It's the people who lived here. You research it and you find, you know, there was people here who were, you know, doing protests and sit-ins 
long before the civil rights movement, they were really ahead of their time. The three and a half years I've lived here, I've seen numerous houses that were vacant or run down, uh, renovated and repaired. Uh, there's a new park which sort of highlights the fact that there are a lot of kids here in this neighborhood too. Uh, there are people who have houses that are over a million dollars, and then we also have public housing, so uh, it's, it's a pretty diverse community. Oh, and the, the Howard Theatre was just renovated, and it's beautiful, especially at night, to walk home after work or class and walk by it. It looks almost magical. We heard from Lauren Case in Tenleytown and Eric Fiddler in LaDroit Park. Your neighborhood can be part of Door to Door, too. Just send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Sabrina Benashore, Jonathan Wilson, and Tara Boyle, along with reporter Jocelyn Frank. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rachel Schuster. Lauren Landau, Rachel Schuster, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Pedal Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be taking chances. We'll see what life is like in the tiny town of Chance, Maryland. We'll hear how folks are coping with a big spike in heroin use in Ocean City. And we'll talk with lawmakers enmeshed in the gun debate and find out why each side thinks the other is taking big chances when it comes to safety. In Maryland, uh, that view that I just expressed to you, which makes all the sense in the world to most people in America, falls on deaf ears in the General Assembly. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.